So Nick, now that I'm starting MFM Fellowship, I'm realizing that I'm very quickly losing my GYN knowledge. I know, right? We did this episode on vulvar disease, and I was like, oh my god, vulvar disease. I have already lost all of my knowledge of that. Where did you find any information about GYN, Faye? So thankfully, the OBG project has all of their up-to-date information on both OB and GYN information um, that you can access online at any point. Fortunately, I've kept up with that subscription-only OBG first, which allows me to bookmark articles and summaries into my own personal library so I can find those things again that I need for studying for the boards. So if you are a fourth-year resident, you can sign up for one year for OBG first absolutely free, and trust me, it is very, very much worth it. Head on over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and see how you too can get a free year of OBG first as a chief resident. guys welcome back this is nick this is Faye, and this is pre-ogs over over coffee Coffee. all right today we're going to move forward into part two of our cardiac disease series and we're going to actually get into some cardiac disease today so Faye, what are our learning objectives so first we're going to talk about the different classifications of cardiac disease and how they relate to pregnancy. We're also going to begin to understand some different valvular defects and how they can affect pregnancy, labor, and delivery. And we're also going to begin to learn how to manage these different valvular defects um, in pregnancy, labor, and delivery. So Nick, kick us off. Um, talk to me about the different classifications of cardiac disease. What are all the things that we use to classify cardiac disease in pregnancy? Yeah, so there's a couple different tools or classifications, I guess. And the bottom line is we're not going to read off everything for you, but we want to get you familiar with some of the strange acronyms and the basics of some of these classes. So one such system for classifying cardiac disease is the modified WHO pregnancy risk classification. And this classification in particular bases cardiac disease on risk towards pregnancy. So the risk of adverse maternal outcomes during a pregnancy. Kind of, it is a system that goes similarly to the NYHA classification that we'll talk about in a minute, class one through four, but it's very, very different than the NYHA classification. So don't get it mixed up here. Class one on the WHO scale is no detectable increased risk of maternal mortality and no or only mild increase in morbidity. So these are things that, again, are relatively uncomplicated, Um, things that are small or mild. Some examples include pulmonary stenosis, patent ductus arteriosus, mitral valve prolapse, and simple repaired lesions. Class two kind of increases our risk a little bit further, and that's, again, a small increased risk of maternal mortality or moderate increase in morbidity. These examples are now things that are a little bit more serious, so unoperated atrial septal defects or ventricular septal defects, repaired tetralogy of Fallot, and most forms of arrhythmia. And then kind of I'll stop here for a minute, but just to say that there's a sort of in-between category like class 2 to class 3 that depends on the individual. Again, where they kind of fall in between these two groups. Faye, why don't you pick it up from there and talk to us about the even higher risk. Yeah, so class three is where there is significantly increased risk of maternal mortality or severe morbidity. And if you have a patient who is um, categorized as class three, 
and they're trying to get pregnant or they already are pregnant, these patients really need expert counseling and they need to be monitored by a cardiac specialist as well as maternal fetal medicine throughout the pregnancy, throughout birth, and even in that initial postpartum period. So some examples of people who are in class three are people who have mechanical valves, someone who have um, a systemic right ventricle, um, patients who have a Fontan circulation, which, you know, in our next few episodes, we'll talk a little bit about, um, and also patients who have aortic dilatation. So classified as 40 to 45 millimeters in Marfan's and then 45 to 50 millimeters in other aortic disease associated with like a bicuspid aortic valve. Class four is where there is extremely high risk of maternal mortality or severe morbidity. In fact, in class four, they specifically say that pregnancy is contraindicated, and if pregnancy does occur, that termination should be discussed. Um, and if pregnancy is continued, these patients, again, should be managed by a cardiologist, by maternal fetal medicine specialists throughout their pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period. Some of these lesions include things like pulmonary arterial hypertension, severe Severe um, left ventricular dysfunction, previous peripartum cardiomyopathy with any type of residual left ventricular dysfunction, things like severe aortic stenosis or you know Marfan's with aortas that are more than 45 millimeters dilated, etc. So basically, where it's very very dangerous to become pregnant. We're going to move on now to the New York Heart Association classifications. Nick, talk to me a little bit about what these are and how this is different from the WHO classifications. So NYHA, you probably remember a bit from medical school, from the 12 weeks you spent as a third year on internal medicine or something, and you probably came across this once or twice. But the NYHA classification, rather than classifying it based on risk to mom during pregnancy as the WHO score does. The NYHA classification stratifies cardiac disease by a person's functional status. This also goes from class one to class four. So class one NYHA disease is just cardiac disease that exists, but results in no symptoms and no limitations in ordinary activity. Class two has mild symptoms and slight limitations. Class three has significant limitation activity due to presence of symptoms, but is comfortable at rest. And class four has severe limitations and symptoms even while at rest. So again, sort of a graded scale that is really speaking to the person's functional status as opposed to their pregnancy risk. Then there's other scores as well that kind of bring us back a bit to pregnancy, Faye. Um, there's a couple of them, I think. Yeah, so we're going to kind of just talk about them together in one breath. The first is the CARPREG2 score, as well as um, ZAHARA, which is spelled Z-A-H-A-R-A, which stands for something that I actually can't pronounce. Uh, but what both of these are, are they're just risk predictors. Basically, and we'll put a chart onto our website, um, these two risk predictors have a chart of certain predictors. So things like the presence of a mechanical valve or baseline NYHA three to four or cyanosis. Um, and they assign points to every single one of these predictors. And at the very end, you add up all the points that the patient qualifies for. And then you take a look at the point and you see how that correlates to their risk of a primary cardiac event occurring. So for example, if your CARPREG2 score is 
one, then there's a 5% risk. But if your score is four, for example, then it's like a 22% risk. So all of these things are things that you can use for your patients who are coming to you if they have some sort of underlying cardiac disease to see what their risk of having a primary cardiac event is during their pregnancy. All right, Nick, so we've talked about all of these classifications for cardiac disease. And again, this is really just to get our listeners familiarized with these terms um, so that they can do more reading into this if they want, because certainly we're not going to be comprehensive about all of these um, classification systems. But let's actually go in and talk now about some cardiac disease. Let's talk about valvular defects. Yeah, we started off big because valvular defects are really diverse and variable. Um, but they break down into two primary groups, but then we'll go into each valve individually because even from valve to valve, the consequences differ. So to start, we'll talk about stenotic lesions of valves. So stenosis just again refers to the fact that a valve is narrowed or stiffened, and so it doesn't allow for passage of blood as easily or as voluminously as before. So let's kind of do this systematically. We'll move from right heart to left heart, just as we did in the first episode, tracing the flow of blood. Um, and most of the consequences of these lesions, again, is going to depend to some degree on the severity too. So let's start in the right heart, sort of that midpoint valve between the atrium and the ventricle is the tricuspid valve. Stenosis of the tricuspid valve makes it really hard for blood to pass again from that right atrium into the right ventricle. So as you can imagine, during pregnancy with increased cardiac output and increased volume, stenosis of the tricuspid valve is going to, again, cause backup there. So behind the tricuspid valve, you have the right atrium and the systemic circulation that's now going to get overloaded. So you get those symptoms, the swelling, the jugular venous distension. Um, and severe stenosis can make it so that less blood gets into the pulmonary system overall. And if we go from there, though, before we get into the lungs, you also have the pulmonary valve, again, from the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery. So this, again, makes it hard for that blood to pass there into the lungs directly. Isolated pulmonary stenosis, though, is pretty well tolerated because pregnancy gives you more volume. So there's more blood to pump to the lungs, and you'd rather be wetter than drier in this case because, again, if you get more blood there, you've got more push to get into the lungs. However, pulmonic stenosis can be associated with other complex congenital heart disease like right ventricular dysfunction. And so if it's associated with other things, the outcomes of pulmonary stenosis may not be as good. Faye, now that we've gotten over the right heart, let's move to the left. On the left side, first the blood is going to come back from the lungs into the left atrium, which is going to pass through the mitral valve to get to the left ventricle. So mitral stenosis which again is that inability of that valve to open up as much as it should to allow blood flow from the right atrium to the right ventricle, the most common cause of this is rheumatic heart disease. With pregnancy, as we know, there's increased cardiac output and heart rate. And so with increasing heart rate, we have a decreased diastolic filling time. And this decreased diastolic filling time in pregnancy is what is really dangerous for patients who have more severe types of mitral stenosis because this can lead to increases in left atrial pressure. Basically, you're not having enough time to allow for the ventricle to fill and you're having blood that's backing up into the left atrium. 
increasing left atrium size can lead to atrial fibrillation, which of course can also lead to things like having blood clots that form in the left atrium. It can also lead to backup of blood into the pulmonary system, causing pulmonary edema. In fact, for patients who have severe mitral stenosis, maternal mortality is as high as 3%, so certainly a lesion that we need to pay attention to. Patients that have mitral stenosis should be assessed and should be placed on a beta blocker if they have severe enough mitral stenosis. This will control the heart rate and also increase that diastolic filling time, thus limiting that backfill of blood into the left atrium and limiting the left atrial pressure. And finally, if these patients do develop atrial fibrillation, they need to be placed on anticoagulation. So let's then move on to the aortic valve, where the blood goes from the left ventricle into the aorta. So the most common cause of aortic stenosis is congenital bicuspid aortic valve, though there are many other causes. Pregnancy, again, is usually very well tolerated unless the patient has severe aortic stenosis. In patients who have severe aortic stenosis, this can lead to things like left-sided heart failure. It can lead to atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. Um, and again, that's because of that backup of blood into the left atrium and into the left ventricle. There's an inability basically to accommodate to this increased need for cardiac output and stroke volume. This can lead to that increased left ventricular and diastolic pressure and then pulmonary edema or even arrhythmias in this case. All right, Nick, so that is basically stenosis. We've talked about what happens if all the valves um, are not able to open up and properly allow blood to go through. Now let's talk about the opposite problem, regurgitation. Yeah, so regurgitation or regurge for short because that's more fun to say too, um, is when the valve doesn't close properly. So that means that kind of paradoxically, there's backflow of blood during either contraction or relaxation that's improper. So let's talk about the right heart again, just to move systematically with tricuspid regurgitation. So again, as the right ventricle is trying to pump away, the tricuspid valve opens up and allows backflow of blood from the right ventricle into the right atrium. This lesion is actually tolerated pretty well overall in pregnancy, but these patients, as you can imagine, are prone to some right atrial dilation, so they're at higher risk of right-sided heart failure and atrial arrhythmias as a result. Pulmonic regurgitation is when blood backflows from the lungs through the pulmonary valve back into the right ventricle during diastole. If that regurgitation is moderate to severe, that also can lead to right heart failure and either atrial or ventricular tachyarrhythmias, again, sort of from that flow coming back and causing dilation of that ventricle improperly. Bay, let's go to the left heart. Yeah, so um, left heart, again, we have the mitral valve and the aortic valve. So mitral regurge is, again, when that um, blood during systole, when the left heart is pumping, goes from the left ventricle backwards into the left atrium. This is, again, also very well tolerated usually, as long as there's no left ventricular systolic dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension. However, if there is symptomatic severe regurge, then these patients really should have their mitral valves repaired or replaced prior to becoming pregnant. In terms of aortic regurgitation, again, also overall very well tolerated, um, unless there is some baseline symptomatic severe aortic regurgitation. And again, it is not well tolerated if there is left ventricular systolic dysfunction. In both of these cases, if the left ventricle is already having problems pumping the normal amount of blood into the system, it's definitely going to have problems if that blood is just coming right back to where it was beginning. If that occurs, then these patients can develop heart failure due to volume overload. 
All right, so we've talked about all of the native valves, Nick, that actually exist in the heart. Let's talk a little bit now about what happens if we have to replace some of these valves. Yeah, well, hopefully you and I aren't replacing any of these valves because that would no, definitely be a not. bad day at the <laughs> office um, or an unnecessary day at the office, I guess. But there is a possibility that you could encounter somebody who has had a mechanical valve or a prosthetic valve in place. Mechanical valves and prosthetic valves are interesting in that, again, they do improve quality of life significantly for these patients. But on the contrary, there's a significantly increased risk of thrombosis or thromboembolic disease in these patients due to kind of disturbance of blood flow and a hypercoagulable state that also exists from pregnancy. Bottom line is that these patients, particularly with mechanical valves, need to be on anticoagulation. Um, and the problem in particular during pregnancy is that mechanical valves actually should be on warfarin um, or Coumadin, as it may be known to some of you. The reason is, is that there's even high rates of thrombosis in patients with mechanical valves while on heparin. Warfarin is actually just a better agent overall. And so we accept to some degree the risk associated with warfarin embryopathy in pregnancies to mitigate this risk of thrombosis. In some practices, you may switch patients from warfarin to heparin for the first trimester and then back to warfarin for the second and third trimester, akin to kind of like the thyroid and PTU, methimazole type of switch. Um, other folks keep them on warfarin throughout. It's just a matter of practice depending on where you go, but it's worth the maternal fetal medicine consultation if you encounter a patient with a mechanical valve or any sort of prosthetic valve. So speaking of Faye, I guess we should talk a little bit about managing these valvular defects if you encounter one during uh, the course of your practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the, the biggest qualification here is really how bad are these valvular defects in pregnancy? Certainly we talked about how a lot of these stenoses and regurgitations, especially if they're mild, are usually very, very well tolerated with pregnancy. So certainly depending on severity, these patients, even before they become pregnant, may need to have some type of preconception counseling with a cardiologist and with maternal fetal medicine. And patients with severe mitral or aortic stenosis, as we talked about before, may need some type of intervention before pregnancy, such as a balloon valvuloplasty. Um, my understanding of a balloon valvuloplasty is very, very limited. From my understanding, somehow interventional cardiologists are able to get a balloon all the way into these valves and they essentially use the balloon to force the valve open. And so this can, of course, lead to an, an effect of creating some type of regurgitation when you're correcting that uh, stenosis. But please, cardiologists, if uh, there's a more elegant way to explain that, which I'm sure there is, please let me know on our social media or via email. <laughs> Um, so Nick, how about during pregnancy? What if these patients come to you either, you know, they have seen you already and they decided that they want to get pregnant or they come to you most of the time already pregnant, haven't talked to anybody about their, you know, severe cardiac valvular lesion. Yeah. So this is going to be based again on their cardiovascular risk score. So you could think to the WHO classification or the CARPREG2 or the Zahara classifications. Again, baseline risk is really a big factor here. Um, and predicting what may lay down the road for these patients. 
Most patients should get an echocardiogram during early pregnancy and likely at some follow-up interval too, depending on their hemodynamic tolerance and baseline symptoms. Heart failure symptoms should really be investigated and evaluated frequently um, because again, due to the cardiovascular remodeling and the significant volume and resistance changes that occur, they're prone to get heart failure, particularly with severe disease. Labor and delivery is always kind of the big consultation piece, I think, Faye. Um, yeah. And like, you know, people always ask like, oh, don't you want a C-section? Doesn't that seem like the safest possible thing? Um, and I think surprisingly enough, vaginal delivery actually becomes the preferred method of delivery for most cardiac disease. There are kind of two notable exceptions to that. One is mitral stenosis with near heart association class three or class four functional status or patients that have pulmonary hypertension. Um, and the other is severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. Again, both of those classifications of patients are very, very prone to pulmonary edema. And so cesarean section may be the preferred method because they just can't keep up past that stenosis. In general, good other principles to follow with cardiac disease during pregnancy and in the intrapartum period in particular, particularly for patients that have more severe symptoms, include early epidural placements and assisted second stage. Additionally, telemetry is an excellent consideration as well, um, particularly if patients are at risk from arrhythmias due to their cardiac condition. So in terms of after delivery, Nick, you're absolutely right. There's that big fluid bolus that's coming from the uterus. For many of these patients, due to that fluid shift, they are definitely at higher risk for heart failure and for arrhythmia after delivery. So these patients, really, you should consider placing them on telemetry. They're already on telemetry during their intrapartum course. You should consider placing them on telemetry for at least the first 24 hours, depending on their cardiac lesion, to just make sure that they're not getting an arrhythmia after that initial fluid bolus from their uterus. And also just make sure that you are maintaining very strict ins and outs for these patients. It's very easy, I think, on the labor floor when we're giving people epidurals and things like that. They're not eating, and we just keep giving them fluid boluses because, you know, maybe their tracing doesn't look so great to forget that sometimes you're making a patient three, four, five liters positive. And for some of these patients who have cardiac issues, um, especially a lot of these patients who have valvular lesions, it's very easy when you're fluid overloading these patients to put them into heart failure. Um, and finally, just not necessarily in that acute postpartum time period, but potentially in the four to six weeks after postpartum, it is very important for these patients to then follow up with cardiology again, and maybe to get even a follow-up echocardiogram to evaluate um, what they're functional statuses um, afterwards as well. All right, Nick, that was definitely a very long episode, um, but I think that brings us to the end of our second part in cardiac disease and pregnancy. So let's go ahead and sum up. So we started off this episode talking about classifying cardiac disease, um, and we went through a couple of different systems. Important ones to remember include the modified WHO risk classification, which again is based on risk towards pregnancy. Moving from class one, where there's no detectable increased risk of maternal mortality and only maybe a mild increase in morbidity, and these are for generally minor cardiac diseases or minor valvular lesions. This moves and gets ultimately more severe um, until you reach class four, where there's an extremely high risk of mortality or morbidity, where pregnancy is contraindicated. Just to remember that these particular conditions, they can include pulmonary arterial hypertension, severe systemic ventricular dysfunction with an ejection fraction of less than 30%, 
previous peripartum cardiomyopathy with residual left ventricular dysfunction, severe mitral or aortic stenosis, Marfan syndrome with a dilated aortic root greater than 45 millimeters or greater than 50 millimeters in non-Marfan's patients, those who may have bicuspid aortic valve, for instance, and native severe coarctation of the aorta. Other cardiac classifications can include the New York Heart Association that is classified from one to four based on functional status, moving from least severe to most severe. And then there are other calculators as well that look at risk predictors over the course of pregnancy, such as the CARPREG2 calculator or the Zahara calculator. We then moved on to talk about valvular defects and started off with stenosis. And we moved through each of the valves in the heart and the different types of stenosis that you can get. A lot of this is uh, dependent on exactly the degree of stenosis. So for example, um, with tricuspid stenosis and pulmonic stenosis, these lesions you can get back up of the fluid into the systemic circulation, leading to things like, like right heart failure, so extremity swelling, JBD, things like that. And in these cases, especially with pulmonic stenosis, you want to think about you want more forward flow of the blood. So sometimes having more of a push or having more fluid is sometimes better so that you're actually getting fluid to the lungs. In terms of mitral stenosis and aortic stenosis, these can cause quite a bit of problems, including backup of the fluid into the pulmonary system, leading to pulmonary edema, as well as increasing the left atrial pressure leading to a dilated left atrium that can cause atrial fibrillation um, and as well as uh, ventricular arrhythmias um, depending on the degree of aortic stenosis. The next set of problems we talked about were the regurgitation valvular lesions. Again, working on the right side of the heart, you have the tricuspid and pulmonic valves, which may lead to right heart failure and atrial or ventricular tachyarrhythmia, but overall both of these are very well tolerated. Mitral regurgitation and aortic regurgitation on the left side of the heart now, um, again, are also pretty well tolerated for the most part, unless there is severe systemic disease resulting from these valvular lesions. Um, in those cases, you should have the valve replaced um, prior to pregnancy. We then briefly touched on mechanical valves and prosthetic valves, and we basically said that for patients who have these types of valves, they're at increased risk of thrombosis and thromboembolism, and they need to be on anticoagulation. Especially for those with mechanical valves, um, we know that Coumadin is actually better for decreasing the rate of thromboembolism than heparin or Lovenox, and so for these patients, there needs to be a discussion about whether or not to keep them on Coumadin during their pregnancy, knowing the embryotoxic effects of Coumadin, as well as uh, potentially talking to them about transitioning them to heparin um, for the first trimester and then rebridging them back onto Coumadin for the rest of their pregnancy. In terms of managing valvular defects in the various stages of pregnancy, pre-pregnancy is the best time to make a plan. Depending on the severity of the lesion, preconception counseling with cardiology and or maternal fetal medicine is advised. Um, patients who have severe stenotic lesions may need to obtain interventional cardiology valvuloplasty beforehand. During pregnancy, patients, again, should follow up with cardiology as well as maternal fetal medicine and should be risk stratified based on their cardiovascular risk score using things like the WHO classification. These patients usually will need an early echocardiogram to see what their functional status is during pregnancy of their heart and will likely need to have follow-up interval um, echocardiograms during their pregnancy depending on their hemodynamic tolerance. Um, these patients, uh, definitely, you need to take their symptoms of heart failure 
very seriously and evaluate them for that. And finally, during labor and delivery, for most of these valvular lesions, a vaginal delivery is usually preferred um, unless they have severe mitral stenosis with NYHA class 3 to 4 function, they have pulmonary hypertension, or they have severe symptomatic uh, aortic stenosis where you think that they are not going to be able to mount the cardiac output that is required for um, labor. And so for these patients, a C-section is generally preferred. Um, for many of these patients, especially with more severe symptoms, we should consider an early epidural, an assisted second stage potentially, and also telemetry if they are at risk for arrhythmias. Finally, the postpartum periods, immediately these patients may need an additional echocardiogram. There are large fluid shifts in the postpartum period, so patients become at high risk for arrhythmia and heart failure. Um, so they should be considered to either continue or start telemetry at that point um, and maintain strict ins and outs to be able to, again, monitor really what's going on with their cardiac status. Even further removed from this, postpartum follow-up is extremely important to ensure good cardiac care um, to keep both mom and baby healthy. All right, I think that wraps it up. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode or any other episode, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at Kriogs Over Coffee 1, on Facebook or Instagram at Kriogs Over Coffee, or on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Kriogs Over Coffee. Give us some love. We'll send you some swag. For show notes for this episode and every other episode, go ahead and go onto our website, www.kriogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a correction for this episode or any of our previous episodes, or you just want to drop us a line, email us at kriogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 